Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Oil, gas, and general macro conditions, I'm going to try to finish off in seven and a half minutes, well short of 10 minutes, because we've got a lot to cover with LAM and, and ACML and, you know, how to make chips is really important, I think, for all kinds of reasons. I think it's important from a macro point of view. I think it's important from a understanding the chip business and whatnot. But just to cover off on oil and gas, oil's been down the last few days. The, I think the immediate cause is concern about China. And since we're going to be talking, making ship equipment, and then when we get through another Wednesday on chip equipment, we're going to swing over into chips. Hard to discuss chips or chip equipment without discussing China. And at least from an oil market, I don't know whether the oil market point of view is right on China, but the oil market point of view is that Chinese consumption of oil products is going to be down. The official growth rate for the China economy, their objective, which is normally six or seven percent of real growth, in other words, uninflated growth, is down at three and a half. And if you had to project current trends, you'd project that they are closer to a recession than we are. And What's happened is that in 08, uh, they came through what we call the Great Recession, the worst decline in GNP since the Depression. They came through it much better. And the way they came through it was by pumping a lot of money into their real estate sector. Real estate sector being office buildings, apartment buildings, infrastructure projects. And they just have not done that this time, a reasoned analysis is that they can't do it this time because they have to redo their real estate yeah. sector. And the way they plan to redo the sector is to basically have the lenders who oftentimes are non-mainline lenders, but also the mainline lenders, they're big banks basically take losses on their debt securities. There's a good article in the Financial Times this morning on Evergrande where there is a debt holder group led by Kirkland and Ellis and Mollis, and they're suggesting that the founder of Evergrande put his own money in so that they can get a better re recovery on their $20 billion of of bonds sold outside of China. I, I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing they would like to see Evergrande do is use some of its liquidity to pay off the bonds or settle it, you know, cents on the dollar or something so they get cash. Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party isn't going to let that happen because what has happened in China is that the large swaths of the population are paying mortgage payments on apartments that these people have to deliver. So the Communist Party and make sure that whatever happens, 
those projects are finished. So it looks to me as though the debt securities, whether they be outside of China, internal inside of China, with the big bank, uh, with other Chinese lenders, are going to have to settle for a long, long period. And in the end, 10 cents on the dollar or something. One of the risks, I suppose, is buying now. What does this mean for the price of oil? Well, without that capacity to kind of pump prime by having the Communist Party direct with more money going to real estate, I don't know how else you get the Chinese economy operate better. They're in these COVID lockdowns, which they're continuing to do, and the economy is just very weak. So that is really weighing heavily on the oil market. The other activity that's going on is negotiating a, a removal of sanctions from Iran. And of course, the Saudi Arabia, the Saudis, the Emirati, the Abu Dhabi, Kuwait, they're not terribly happy about that. And probably what they're going to do at the next OPEC meeting in early September, start to curtail the amount of oil that is produced. So that will help the price of oil a little bit. In terms of Russian production, Russia, the United States and Saudi Arabia, the three largest producers in the world, all at around 11 billion barrels, 10, 11, 11 and a half million barrels. Russian oil is still being consumed in Europe. Everyone says, oh, it's all going to India and China at a $25 discount, half a million barrels, maybe a million barrels is out of the 11. That's all. The rest is still being used in Europe. I think what you can, we can expect is reduced sanctions because the impact on the European economies is just so severe and probably just continued war in the Ukraine, maybe leading into some kind of a stalemate, like the stalemate they were in before they invaded, where they were you know, they've been fighting ever since the annexation of Crimea out eastern Ukraine. So that may be so that the sanctions may just be diluted over time. Natural gas is quite remarkable. LNG in Europe traded earlier this week at hundred dollars. That's a ridiculous number. The BTO equivalency a hundred dollars times six at six hundred dollar oil. Obviously this is a spike and you know, maybe forty dollar LNG. LNG Natural gas in the United States is doing very, very well. It, the near month is nine. There's lots of backwardation so that you get out three years and it's $4 or 450 What's happened is that it's been very hot all over the Southwest, and now we're going to have some real hot weather in the, in the West. And, and power generation has been hard-pressed to keep from having rolling blackouts. And what the ISOs are doing is having capacity payments. So in other words, if you're, you know, you can dispatch wind and solar can't do it, but you know, you can dispatch to get paid capacity payments. Capacity payments are up like 10 or 15 times from a couple of years ago. This allowed someone with a combined cycle gas plant in effect, know that they can get paid. And I think that strengthened the gas market. So plus LNG, you know, is is used to be 13. Now it's only 11 because Freeport is down on the facilities. But it, based on what people are building in five or six years, it's going to be 30. So natural gas actually looks you know, pretty well established. I actually, frankly, think oil is pretty well established. I just think China's second largest economy has to get out from under and hopefully that'll do it. But it's more likely to be the Chinese consumer having extra money to spend rather than the, the Communist Party kind of directing money into the, uh, into the real estate sector of that economy. 
that, I think I'm over seven and a half minutes, but it does have an impact on chips. And when we go and we look at lab research or ASML or the chip company, it's amazing the high percentage of revenue that comes from China. Mike and I now are in the habit of talking for 20 minutes, 9.30 his time, 8.30 my time. One of the things I've been asking Mike about is we worry about Taiwan's semiconductor in case China comes across the Straits of Taiwan. But, you know, what about the fact that when you're making this equipment, off a lot of your cells go into China. With that, I'll turn it over to Mike and he can tell you where he thinks the exposure is or what, how the exposure can be thought about from an investment point of view. So over to you, Mike. Okay. So with China, the historical export controls have focused on the technology that would enable you to do what is the leading edge of all of the semiconductor production. So that's really focused around EUV, which is a technology that ASML produces that enables super high resolution lithography for the production of chips. The government is considering some more specific and maybe more pointed actions to curb and control some of the exports. The reason that the alarm bells have been going off go back to the seven nanometer chip that they were able to produce out of SMIC, a Chinese foundry. Now, I, I think we talked about this last week or the week before, that chip probably wouldn't be profitable in most cases, except that it happened to be a Bitcoin mining chip. And at the time that it was produced and released, they could probably deal with the relatively low yields. In order for them to reliably produce chips at a seven nanometer spec, they would need ASML's tools. So previous export controls have focused around that. There's talk about focusing on a different technology called FinFET, which would broaden the scope of tools that could potentially be ready regulated and the industry is still kind of grappling with what all that would mean there's a kind of a third tier to this that might focus on memory mainly just because of ymtc one of the chinese memory producers and the fact that they are now the leading memory producer by density of memory and also happen to be a large customer of lamb research which is the company we're going to talk a little bit more about today. So all that is to say is that these are all sort of in the scope of things that could be restricted. Again, back to land research, their Chinese exposure is 31% of revenue. The majority of that is actually domestic Chinese companies, uh, as opposed to non-Chinese companies with operations in China. Taking off from Mike's comments about LAM and ASML, just from another aspect of the energy business, I want to mention something that shows how interrelated our economy is with China. On wind and solar, they make a high portion of the high proportion of the solar panels in the world. And there was going to be a tariff on them. And that caused consternation in the U.S. solar industry because these projects had already been committed and the power sold a certain price. That particular issue seems to have passed. But Elon Musk, in a speech in Europe, made the following point. He said, look, lithium, which is principal raw material and making batteries, generally available now, generally available, 
depends on the time frame. Where most lithium is comes from now and will come from is in Chile and Argentina. And these are salt flats. Uh, the other way to find lithium is with sponge mean, which is with rocks and principal source of lithium from sponge mean is Australia. But problem with lithium is you have to refine it to get it up to a grade where you can use it in a battery. Very high portion, maybe approaching 90% of all the lithium refining in the world in China. I had dinner, Betsy and I had dinner last night with some mining people who work on one of our companies. One of them had some experience here, said, even if the U.S. wanted to bring the lithium, the raw lithium in from Chile and from uh, Australia, it would be next to impossible to permit a facility to refine the lithium in this country because of environmental issues. I mean, no state would want it. No county would want it. Apparently, it's just, you know, one of the more difficult types of industrial activity from an environmental point of view. Chinese made a decision to do this. So just think how interrelated what we worry about, you know, China somehow, you know, doing some military action on Taiwan and, and getting in the way of Taiwan semiconductor, which would be very disruptive to the whole industry. We are committed. I mean, California is announced you won't be able to buy a new car in California unless it's an electric vehicle. Where in the world are the batteries going to come from? There's no way our dependence on getting lithium hydroxide, the refined lithium that you need to make batteries, it's just not practical to substitute for China. What are we going to do? We're going to figure out somewhere in Mexico that will put up with the environmental issues? I don't think so. So the interrelationship of the two economies is quite remarkable. And we're much better able and in position to sanction Russia, but to try to do something like that with China in the event that they got very aggressive on Taiwan just doesn't feasible. I mean, I just I, I, I wouldn't want to make investments or see anyone make investment based on that conclusion, but it would just be awfully, awfully hard. But that doesn't mean to say that there isn't risk in LAM and ASML and, and frankly, risk in, you know, a whole chip industry because of their dependence on Taiwan Semiconductor. You know, there's, there's no question. I mean, it's a little bit like Putin and the Ukraine. There's no question that the leadership in China wants to make Taiwan more like Hong Kong. Absolutely no question. What lengths will they go to to make that happen? But overall, I mean, you wouldn't want to have a full position, I don't think, in these things with China risk. Or how about Apple with China risk, where the iPhones we use, the uh, laptops we use, whatnot, mostly made by Foxconn, a, a company headquartered in Taiwan, owned in Taiwan, who is the largest employer in China. I mean, the interrelationship between the two economies is quite remarkable. And just an interjection, you know, we're taking time away from LAM and ASML, but in terms of assessing these risks, I think the positive thing is the two economies are awfully interrelated. Any, anything to add, or have I misstated anything there, Mike? No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head because... Every investment has China risk because if we were to decouple from China, the impact on literally pick any company in the country, it's going to be affected by it and it's not going to be positive. 
uh, unless it's a defense stock, I guess. Well, maybe there's a few other that, that you could pick out, but in most cases, it's going to be a negative situation if we completely decouple. I mean, when we went through the large tech companies, because we saw this huge drawdown in U.S. equity base, we said high quality companies with cash flow that are going to be written down to a level that, you know, might be a once or twice a decade channel level. I mean, that's, that's what we spent a lot of time looking at March and April and May. Um, I mean, we picked out companies like Amazon, not much China risk, Apple, huge China risk, Google, not much China risk, Microsoft, more. And, but I guess when we're focusing where the China risk is, we, at least speaking for myself, didn't appreciate that some of the risk is offset by how interrelated the two economies are. It, you know, especially when you, when you look at something like LAM and, you know, like, I don't know, 60, 70% of their revenues come from sales into China. All investing is a matter of assessing the risk, losing money or making money, and, and the right types of investing where you invest now and you hold something for 10 years or whatnot. I mean, five years out, you can have something that's gone up three times. If you stick with it, I mean, you, you may not lose based on your initial investment, but you sure as heck can lose based on the appreciation. On the one side is a drive in China, uh, and certainly part of that drive is to somehow annex Taiwan. Against that, the interrelationship of the U.S. and China is just really, really, really remarkable. But here I splurge time on this. We need to get back to LAM and ASML. So I'll try to I'll try to pipe down and leave the rest of the half hour to pipe. Okay, so the. What I wanted to start with today then is wafer fab equipment. That's an industry known forecast that really drives the estimations for revenue for these top semi-cap companies. So the five largest semi-cap companies are Applied Materials, ASML, Tokyo Electron, LAM Research, and KLA. And they, they make up something like 80% of the total global WFE wafer, wafer fab equipment forecast. So, so these five companies are really the ones, the ones that matter. If you break down LAM, you look at the exposure of the company, they're 54% memory, 46% logic and other. So they're a little skewed toward memory. NAND being the largest revenue chunk and DRAM only being 14% of total revenue. Without going too much in the weeds here, there's a lot more profits in RAM. So like uh, Micron does both NAND and DRAM, but they make a lot more money in, in DRAM than NAND. NAND is an area that Lane Research has a large amount of exposure to. Uh, they sell to YTMC, who's building a lot of large fabs to produce a lot of NAND. So NAND is, for clarity, NAND is essentially your solid state hard drive memory would be the, the easiest way to think about it. Like I said, the risk there is if the U.S. government were to try to protect both South Korea and SK Hynix is a big player in the NAND space, and then Micron, who has some exposure there as well, they could move to protect those industries in the way that they did not do for solar. And maybe one way they, way they would do that is limit some of the exports of LAM Research's equipment as that is important in making those memory chips. All that is to say, that's one way to think about their current exposure. 
in regards to regulation and exports. I think that we're a few steps away from the government considering something like that. So I don't think that's an immediately clear and present. It seems like they're more focused on logic and more focused on the leading edge logic. So thinking forward where LAM research is going to play, there's technology for dry resist, which again, we talked a little bit about this last week as far as etch and resist being their processes. And these are processes that kind of are in line with the production of these, these wafers is the, seems to be the standard for EUV and high NA EUV lithography. So if you're implementing one of these latest generation nodes, in other words, if you're a Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung and Intel, the ones that are, well, Intel's talking about doing it in the the future generation, but really Taiwan Semiconductor being the main one, you're using the LAM research process and thinking forward 10 years or so, presumably in the same way that DUV, which is the trailing, uh, the trailing solution in the same way that is now prevalent everywhere. We expect that EUV will become the standard. And if LAM research is the standard product to be used for the resist and etch processes associated with those, it's going to paint a good picture for the future of LAM research. Oh, I, now we've just, we've just got a few minutes left. I got to get in the word for ASML. I just encourage everyone to, it's a Dutch company, so it doesn't really have 10 Qs the way, but the latest report on ASML, uh, they call it a statutory interim report. And it goes on for six or seven pages, numbers, but mostly words. It is easy to fall in love with ASML, one that you described. Now it's in English, it's not in Dutch. All the numbers are in euros, but the euro is fading about even with the dollar. So you, you just can ignore the fact that it's in euros. This is a really attractive business before you get into whether it's trading at a reasonable valuation or whatnot. The two businesses, I mean, we, we've done Shopify, Snowslays, and Ellen, this quest to do 50 companies, and then the semi, semiconductor equipment businesses, and we've got three. We'll spend more time next week on applied, maybe some more time on ASML. But the two that are easy to fall in love with, just because they seem like such neat businesses, are Snowflake and ASML. And I think Jason and Mike, really like land research, but I think with the few minutes we have what we ought to get a commentary from Mike on how to, uh, how to think about these things being so terribly attractive, just the way they present themselves to their stockholders. Um, uh, that's still make them a good investment, a bad investment, but my experience, good investment, you're happy reading a quarterly commentary. The people know the business well and they explain it well and they don't waste their time and whatnot. So with the last remaining few minutes, we'll get Mike's reaction to my reaction to AFML. It's hard not to like a company that's got, what is it, $8 billion in bookings on the books. So ASML's product, without it, the industry itself wouldn't exist. Their EUV technology is the only, only game. So you don't even start thinking about putting together the rest of the etch and resist processes associated unless you have the lithography machine and 
just so to, to cover really quickly, lithography is sort of like developing a photo and you've got a photo mass, which helps you imprint a particular pattern on a wafer. And with, without that piece of equipment, the rest of it doesn't work. And there literally are no competitors. So in, in general, we like businesses where there's a, only one player and they're the clear leader. The opportunity to disrupt that is relatively slim. And usually it comes from a long way out and it takes a long time. So I think they're in a very good position for a very long period of time. Clearly their financials are quite good. All of these companies tend to be relatively low leverage because they do go through cycles. So most of the management teams have been through a few semiconductor cycles at this point. So they tend to speak pretty confidently about their ability to handle whatever is thrown at them. Um, as a result, their cost structures tend to be more variable. So they, they tend to be able to adapt to the changes in it. WFE spent spending over any given year. Oh, we're, we're about out of time. Now we'll make sure anyone listening today is assured that we'll spend a little time on oil and gas and macro next week, and we'll devote quite a lot of next week to ASML and then applied materials. There's uh, another company in the field. It doesn't look as attractive as LAM or ASML, but we'll cover that one too. And then, uh, after next week, we're going to swing in and cover for four or five, six weeks, we're going to cover the different chip companies. We certainly spent lots of time on NVIDIA and some amount of time on AMD, and we will spend time on Intel and we'll spend time on Qualcomm and, and Mike and Jason have found a new one called Marvell. So one more week on semiconductor equipment, and then we're going to have five or six weeks going through the uh, different chip companies. With that, everyone stay well and stay healthy and we'll be on with you next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 